But it's a really, it's a really exciting night for you to jump into this service because we're going to be kicking off a new series as a part of this night service. And the purpose of this series really is just to get our eyes onto God. Because, you know, we hear, we say it all the time, a lot of religious people say it, you know, that God is love and God is just, God is holy. But what, does, what do those things actually mean? And, and more importantly than that, what does the Bible actually have to say about those topics? Is it true that God is loving? And, and if he is, what does that actually mean? So I'd encourage you, if you're a believer here tonight, to, to invite your friends into this space to be able to... Uh, come and explore these topics with us. I think it's a really good opportunity for us to, to, to look at who God is. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do the text at questions. There'll be, um, there'll be a number on the next slide, so maybe you just jump to it. There'll be a number up there um, that you can text any questions that you might have uh, in anything that I share tonight. Uh, and then at the end of the talk, I'll uh, have an attempt at answering them. I may have to say, I don't know. I may have to say, chat to you later. Um, but it's just an opportunity for there to be a dialogue happening uh, as we share. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, uh, and I would invite you uh, to pray for yourselves and to pray for me as well. Uh, my encouragement to you tonight is that God's Word has something to say to us. It has something to say to you, and so I would pray that you would join with me in asking God to do that now. Let's pray. Father, you say that your word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword that can pierce to the deepest parts of our hearts. Lord, we invite you to do that work tonight by your spirit. We ask that you help us to be honest with ourselves, Lord. It's so hard sometimes to be honest, but help us to do that tonight. I pray that you'll help us to see Christ in all his richness and glory. And we pray these things in your name and for your glory. Help us, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, tonight, as I already mentioned, we're going to be starting a new series. And, and the reason behind this series is because we thought one of the most difficult things as a Christian, in the midst of all the pain and suffering in the world, in the midst of all our weaknesses and sins that we see inside, in the midst of everything that's going on in our life, is to think about what are we beholding? What are our eyes looking to in the midst of all these things? You know, I remember a particular time in my life where things were really difficult, and it was so hard for me to get my eyes on God. For those of you who know, know me well, you know that one of the things I struggle with as a Christian is anxiety. It's been something that's ran in my family, and it's something that I struggle with as well. Over many years, it's taken many shapes and forms. But one particular time I remember that I found it really difficult was when I moved to Poland. I lived in Poland for a year, for those of you who don't know, working in a church over there. And about four months into that time, just when everything seemed to be settling down, I'd found a few friends. The culture wasn't as strange as I first thought. And then I just remember getting up one morning and this flood of panic hit me. And I don't even know why. This flood of panic hit me before we know it. I was physically reacting and I was having a full-blown panic attack. And I remember the thoughts that came to my mind. Here I am, thousands of kilometers away from my family, still got eight months left of my time here. I feel alone, I feel isolated, and everything feels out of control. Physically, mentally, spiritually, it was hard. And it was so hard to get my vision back onto God, onto who he is and what he's done in Christ. 
And you know, as you come in here tonight, I don't know whether you're feeling some kind of spiritual panic. Perhaps things are not going so well for you tonight. Perhaps life isn't panning out as well as you thought it would and it's a bit more challenging than you thought and you're just finding it difficult to get perspective on God. Or or perhaps you're someone here and and if you're honest with yourself, you just know that God's taking the back seat in your life. If you're honest, you just know that there are things in your life that just seem more appealing than God at the moment, seem more pressing than God. Or perhaps you're not even a Christian here tonight and you're just wondering if there is a God, why should I look to him? Why should I behold this God? Well, I hope that tonight serves to give you some vision, to give you some vision back. As I already mentioned, we're going to be looking at a book in the Bible called 2 Corinthians. Here at Canterbury Gardens, we believe that God's word, every word in the Bible is God's word to us, so it has relevance. So we're going to be looking at this letter. So if you have Bibles, please open them to 2 Corinthians 3. I say this every time, but I want you to follow along with me. I want you to see what God has to say, not necessarily what I have to say. And so please track with me in God's word. It's going to be up on the screen as well, but have it in front of you along with that. Now, this letter of 2 Corinthians was written by a guy named Paul. Some of us will know who he is, Paul the Apostle, some of us won't. He had a relationship with this church in a town called Corinth. And he's already written several letters to this church. We know of at least one, 1 Corinthians. And, and this church really was a bit of a messy church. There's, there's no, else, no other way to say it. You know, they, they had jealousy and, and divisions amongst themselves. One, one guy liked this preacher, one person liked this preacher. There was infighting amongst them. And, and Paul, in his first letter, really had to sort out some of these basic issues amongst the Corinthian church. But as he writes this second letter, there's something else going on. You see, there's a new problem that has crept in, and it's actually far more dangerous than the problems they had before. You see, there was a false teaching coming into this church, a false teaching that was being proclaimed by these so-called super-apostles. We read about them in the second half of uh, this book, that these super-apostles were bringing in some message, and it was making the church doubt who Paul was. You see, these super-apostles had some special access to God to bring some special new message that Jesus forgot to preach about, apparently. You know, just as a side here, this is a problem that we have today as well. It's not just a problem back then, but it's a problem today. You know, this is virtually how all cults and offshoots of Christianity start. Some special person gets some special access to Jesus and comes along with a new message. But can I just say, if you see something like that to run from that. We actually don't need a new message. We have God's word given to us. It is the full counsel of who God is. We don't need a new revelation. We don't need a super apostle. We just need God's word delivered to us. But this is what the Corinthians were getting sucked into. There was a new message coming along. And we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but we know it had to do with bringing back in the law and the old covenant, bringing back in new commands. In other words, Jesus plus something. Jesus wasn't enough. He needed something else. And so this was the challenge of the Corinthians. And in the passage we're looking at, chapter 3, Paul's going to give us a comparison. He's going to show us the difference between the old covenant with Moses and the law and the new covenant revealed in Jesus Christ. 
And so that's what we're going to see. So looking at verse 1, follow along with me and see if you can already spot in these first few verses Paul's tone. Here's what he says, verse 1 and 2. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. I don't know if you can hear it, Paul's concern in his, his words there. He's saying, do, do I need to commend myself to you again? Do I need a letter of recommendation? Now this gets lost on some of us, but this was essentially what happened back then was if you came to a town with a message, you would bring with yourselves letters of recommendation that basically told everyone why you were legit, why your message should be listened to. Like self-endorsements, a cover letter, that kind of thing. And, you know, Paul says, do I need that? Maybe these super apostles need to talk themselves up, but do I need to do that? And he says, no, because you are my letter of recommendation. He's essentially saying that I don't need one because you're the evidence that my message is true. God's working amongst you. He's changing you. He's transforming you. That's my letter of recommendation. I don't need to prove myself. God proves himself as he works amongst you. And then he continues to build on this argument. Look at verse 3. He starts to use this comparison language that we're going to hear all throughout this chapter. Look at verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, now what is he talking about there? But one of my encouragements would be to you is that the Bible always interprets the Bible. So think back to where you've heard that there was writing on tablets of stone. And, and if you know the Bible any well, you, your mind will go back to Moses, right? Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments written on two stone tablets. And Paul is saying his message isn't written on stone tablets. His message is written on the heart. And you can read about this story in Exodus 19 where Moses is up on the mountain and brings down the Ten Commandments. Now we're going to come back to that in a second but we're going to keep building on Paul's argument here. Look at verse 4. He continues on. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, so do you see here Paul moving forward with his argument? He says, I don't need great confidence in myself, but I have great confidence before God through Jesus Christ. Not because of anything he's done, but God himself has made Paul sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. And then he says this really interesting thing, right? He says that he is a minister of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Now again, what is he saying? Because we can read over this really quickly and, and miss its meaning, but he's building again on what he's already mentioned, right? The Old Testament, the law, came to the nation of Israel, and it was not only written on stone tablets, but it was written down to them. You know, Leviticus, Numbers, all those laws that we read about in all the boring parts of the Bible that we get lost in in our Bible readings... 
All those laws and commandments were written down for the people of Israel. That's what Paul's referring to by the letter. And he's saying his message isn't like that. It comes by the Spirit. But this is a pretty full-on language that he uses here, right? Paul's talking about the old covenant that God made with his people, and he says that the letter kills. It kills, and the Spirit gives life. The new covenant gives life. The old covenant kills. And this isn't the only spot he uses this language. In verse 7 of this very chapter, he calls the old Mosaic covenant the ministry of death, and the new covenant the ministry of the Spirit, And then later, in verse 9, he calls the Old Covenant the ministry of condemnation and the New Covenant the ministry of righteousness. And so this brings us really to our first point. Paul's giving us the comparison. The ministry of death versus the ministry of life. Now, now the obvious question that should be going through all of your minds right now is, how can Paul, servant of God, say that the Old Covenant, given by God to his people, is one of condemnation and death. But, well, don't hear me wrong. Paul is not saying that there is some defect with what God has given. Paul actually says in Romans chapter 7 that the law is holy and righteous and good. There was nothing wrong with what God gave. You see, the problem was what the law did to us. The problem was with us. And Paul has already given us a glimpse as to what these problems were. There were three major problems from this passage about the law. See, the first one was that the law could not change our hearts. The law could not change our hearts. This is what Paul meant in verse 3, right? We read about that. Look back at what he says. Paul says the Corinthians, they are a letter written by the Spirit of God on human hearts, not on tablets of stone. You see, the old covenant, the law that was given by God to the people of Israel, it was external to them. It was not internal. It said, do this and obey. But it did nothing about the heart inside them. You see, they didn't want to obey. What they really needed, they needed new desires. They needed a new power. But the law didn't do that. It just told them they fell short. Secondly, the law puts a confidence in our flesh. This is one of the big problems with the Pharisees of of Jesus' day, of of the people of God often, is it put a confidence in their flesh. You see see what Paul says in verse 4 and 5 again. He says that he has no confidence in himself, but full confidence in what God had done because God had made him sufficient. But the law puts confidence in our flesh because when we do good, we get blessed. That's what it says. When we do bad, we get cursed. And so it puts a confidence in ourselves that as Paul already, I mean as Shabu already mentioned, causes us to look down on other people when we're doing well and to condemn ourselves when we're doing poorly. And thirdly, and most significantly, the law kills. He said that, right? The law kills. But we need to ask ourselves, why does it kill? Why does the good and perfect and righteous and holy law kill us? Because it shows us how utterly sinful and broken we are. It says, here's God's perfect standard of righteousness and holiness, and this is where you are. You know, it's kind of like this. This past week, I was in the hospital with 
um, a guy some of you know named Jesse. Uh, he plays in one of the church basketball teams. This is not going to be an advertisement for it, as you will soon find out. But basically, I went to watch their first game, or not their first game, the first game I've been to watch on Monday night, and he managed to break his nose. Some guy came through with an elbow, um, and it was pretty obvious it was broken within the first few seconds. So I had to take him to the emergency room. Great. First night watching them. I was the only person watching. Perhaps that's why. I don't know. Maybe this has happened before. But anyways, we were there for six hours at the emergency room at Marinda Hospital. Maybe stay away from there. But So 4.30 in the morning. Now during this six hours of waiting from 10 to 4, me and Jesse were having conversations and we slowly ran out of things to talk about. But, but what we kept coming back to was, yeah, yeah, I think it's broken. Yeah, 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 it, it's definitely broken. You know, it's pretty, it looks pretty crooked. Uh, it's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's broken. Um, you know, that's kind of filled the awkward space that we had together. Um, but, you know, six hours later, but, you know, but there were still thoughts in my mind. Like, I don't know, can a nose dislocate? I don't know. I was like, maybe it's not broken. Maybe it's dislocated. Maybe they just have to put it back in place. Maybe your nose was that crooked before. I, I don't really know you that well. Perhaps, you know, I, was just, I wasn't looking at your nose before this. But, you know, there were still some hopes. But then, you know, six hours later, finally we see this doctor. 4.30 in the morning, we're just, like, completely exhausted. And, you know, he comes in, and, and Jesse says to him, you know, I, I think my nose is broken. Um, well, the, first of all, the doctor said, what's wrong? Which I thought was an odd question. It seemed pretty obvious to me. But he didn't want to offend him in case his nose really was that crooked. But anyways, the, he said, Jesse says, I think my nose is broken. And the doctor replies to him, get this. Now, this is technical doctor language. I don't know. Ethan's maybe the only one who's going to understand this. But he replies, he says, yeah, I think it's broken. <laughs> Six hours for that gem of information that we've just been waiting for. But this is essentially what the law does to us, right? Humanity knows something's wrong. We have a conscience. We look around. We see the world's broken. And then the law comes along and it just confirms to us how broken we are. But it does nothing to help us, right? Just like the doctor's telling Jesse that his nose was broken does nothing at all to help him with the healing process. It just confirms to him what we've been discussing for six hours, that it was broken. And so this is what the law does. It says, you're broken, but I can't help you. You fall short. In fact, it's even worse because then you start to feel guilty and shame because of the law. This is what it does. And so these are the three things that Paul's bringing out in this passage. The old covenant, the law under Moses, it it can't help us. And the same is true for us today. Every single human who has ever lived and whoever will live and whoever does live now can't measure up to God's perfect standard. He can't be good enough to make it to heaven. This is why the old covenant brings death. And if this was all that Paul was saying, we'd be in trouble tonight. But it's not, right? He mentions that there's a new covenant. And the new covenant does the opposite of these three things, right? And we've already seen that as well. Look, let's look at these things in reverse. You see, rather than the law giving us, rather than giving us a law that cannot be met, the new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ gives us a righteousness that is not our own. Right? We see that alluded to. Paul says, who's the one who made him sufficient? God made him sufficient. The new covenant through Jesus gives us a righteousness that is not our own. You see, that's the point of Jesus. 
He came to take our failings and our sin, all of our unfulfillment and all of our falling short of the law. He took it upon himself. And do you know what we get in return? His perfect righteousness. So that means if you're a Christian here tonight, you're as righteous as Jesus is and he's God because of his perfect work on the cross. It's a free gift where we can receive his very righteousness. You see, the law is done with for us who are Christians. It has no claim over us anymore. It's been fulfilled in Jesus completely. But secondly, and necessarily, this leads to the second one, that it makes us have a confidence purely in God. This is really good news for me, and it's really good news for you, because I still fail. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but I still fall down. I still make mistakes, even as a Christian. But then I'm reminded that it's okay, because I don't have to have confidence in me. I have confidence in Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. And that's always enough. We already know it's enough for God, because he rose from the dead. He didn't stay dead. So it gives us a confidence outside of ourselves And finally, the new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ means that God comes and lives within us by his spirit and gives us a new heart. And we see that already, right? That's what Paul means when he says that it's written not with ink, not on tablets of stone, but by the spirit of God on tablets of human hearts. The spirit of God comes to live within us and he actually gives us new desires. We want to serve God. We want to obey him. And more than that, we have a power within us so that we can actually obey God. And so when you look at it like this, you see the vast difference between the law of God under Moses and the new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. And you can see why Paul was so concerned that these Corinthians were starting to believe these super apostles to add something to their faith because it compromised everything. And I just want to pause and and ask you, is this the message that you've come to believe, the ministry of life? Maybe you've been living this whole time under the ministry of death, thinking that God wants you to be good enough to spend eternity with him. He actually says that he's covered your bad. He's taken it on the cross and he can give you his righteousness. And that's available to you tonight. He doesn't lay a burden on you to say, clean up your life, get it together, and then come to me. He says, I've taken all that you've done and I've put it on myself and I offer you this righteousness. Have you accepted that? Tonight, you can do that by just offering a prayer up to God and accepting Jesus. Now, now I know that's a pretty weighty first point, and we're going to pick up the pace for now, but Paul isn't done yet. He's going to keep comparing between these two things, but he's going to do it in a new way now. Look at verse 7 and see if you can pick up the word that is repeated just a couple of times. Now, If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. 
Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Did you catch that word? Why don't you tell it to me? What was repeated? Beautiful. Well done. You could all be theologians. Glory. So what he does now is he moves from what these ministries do to comparing the glory of these two ministries. So he's comparing a temporary glory and a permanent glory. A temporary glory versus a permanent glory. Now, if you look back at verse 7, he actually says that the old covenant, the law of Moses that came, it actually had a type of glory, right? And we know that those who know the story well, think back what happened. Moses goes up on that mountain, there's smoke and there's lightning and there's the earth shaking. It's a pretty amazing scene. It's a glorious scene, right? But notice something about the glory. What did this verse say? The Israelites could not even look at Moses' face because it was shining so brightly after being in God's presence that he had to cover his face. They couldn't look at it. So you see, this glory was an unapproachable glory. It was an unapproachable glory. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, we see this, right? We see the, the Israelites not able to come close to God, face to face with God. There's always something between them. You know, the, the high priest went once a, once a year before God after going through all these ritual cleanses and even then they used to tie a rope around him and attach it to him in case he died in the presence of God because he hadn't cleansed himself probably so they could pull him back out again. They couldn't approach. And you know, I, I always used to think God just had a bad temper in the Old Testament when they would touch the wrong thing and they'd just die. It wasn't that. It's just that his holiness defeats and consumes sin. That's what it does. This is what his glory does. It was an unapproachable glory. They couldn't come near it. And, and it was a temporary glory. He says that. You see, it was coming to an end. It was only there to show us our need for a savior, a need for something different that could actually bring us to God. But you see, and this is the great news, that the new covenant brings a different kind of glory. And this is really the pinnacle of the gospel. There's nothing that I will say tonight that is more amazing than this. You see, because of all the things we said before, because Jesus gives us his righteousness and his perfect record, we can actually come before the holy and glorious God freely. We can actually approach him and behold God. I don't know if that feels amazing to you, but just think about that for a second. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to clean our lives up. We don't have to go through ritual purifications. We don't have to do anything, but we have faith in Jesus who did all of the work on our behalf. We come face to face with the one who the Psalms say has fullness of life and joy in him. Does that give you a sense of awe? Because it should to dwell upon that fact. It's an approachable glory and it's an endless glory. This type of glory will never end. We will spend eternity with God for those who are Christians, forever beholding who he is. It's amazing. But the question is, what does it mean for us now as believers? And I want to finish this off tonight by looking at the last few verses because Paul's going to bring it to a really amazing close at the end of this chapter. So we'll read off the last few verses, going back to verse 12. Here's what it says. Since we have such a hope, 
We are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil, that same veil, I lost my spot. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So I don't know if you caught all of what was going on there, but Paul was essentially saying that when someone becomes a Christian, the veil is lifted. They can actually come face to face with God and behold him. There is freedom there. But I want to finish by looking at this last verse, verse 18, because I think there's some really amazing things in this verse. Look at verse 18 again and take in what it's saying. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this brings us to our final point. We as believers grow by the power of the Spirit as we behold the glory of God through Christ. You see, these final verses are all about where we're looking. What are we beholding? You know, and part of this is just understanding, as we mentioned before, the magnitude that we as God's people can come before him through Jesus Christ. We can see his beauty and worth. And perhaps tonight is just about a refresher in that for you. Or perhaps this is firstly the first time that you've heard it. But I want it to be clear what these verses are saying and what they are not saying. Because I think there is two mistakes that we can often run into as those who call ourselves Christians. The first mistake is this. We pursue a self-made transformation. See, look at that verse 18. Where does the transformation come from in verse 18? It doesn't come from us. It says in that last line of verse 18 that it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And Shabu's already spoken about this tonight, but I think the temptation as Christians is to buy into the fact of self-made transformation. And we think, if I just read my Bible enough, and pray enough and focus on my sin a lot and try to put management systems in place and do all of these things, then God's going to transform me. All the while we don't realize that our eyes are on us constantly. We're trying to do it in our own strength. Our focus is on us and we're missing the point. What is our responsibility in these verses? It's not to transform ourselves. That's not what it says. God's Spirit does that. Our responsibility, it says is to behold the glory of God. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into his image. You see, we fall into this trap, and I, I am so guilty of this. I fall into this trap so often, of looking internally so often, too much, introspecting, trying to find the root of every single cause and sin. And it sometimes drives me insane. And then I'm reminded that I actually need, I actually have a Savior who's outside of myself. 
I actually can behold him in all his glory and get my eyes off my weaknesses for a minute, get my eyes off my sin for a minute and look to him in all his perfection and glory. You see, we can't beat the sin out of our lives. The key to the victory over our sin is beholding God's glory. Because when we see him, this verse says we will be transformed. We just will. It will just happen. We will be transformed. Just as Moses reflected God's glory when he spent time in the presence of God, so we, through Christ, are transformed as we behold him. It's amazing. And it's freeing. Do you feel how freeing that is? Because I don't often. But it's not up to you to transform yourself. That's good news. My job is actually just to behold God's glory, to look at him, to see his worth and his magnificence, and to see how his gospel and all that Jesus Christ has done is the thing that my heart really craves and wants. But you see, this leads to our second mistake that we make, and that's to be consumed with lesser glory. You see, I think some of us get this idea in their mind that God's just done it all so I can get on living my own life and it's all good. The younger brother effect. And before we know it, even as Christians, our eyes are beginning to look to things that we were never meant to look to for our meaning and our worth. You know, even as Christians, our hearts can get drawn to love things that should never be loved in the way that we do. To get our joy and hope from things that we shouldn't be getting them from. And this can take any form. That's why it's so dangerous. We, we can look to our financial security or our friendships or our popularity or our social justice efforts or our defense of the faith to our sport, to, our, to sex, to entertainment, to relationships the need to be in a relationship whatever it is we can look to these things and they are lesser glories that cannot give us what only God can give us no we are called to behold him church we're called to look to his glory but I want to make this as practical as I can you know part of the practice Part of the practical part from this sermon is just to be reminded of what we have access to. But I want to bring it home as much as I can. So I'm going to give you a few questions to think about to apply these wonderful realities to your heart. So here are just a couple of practical questions to think about. The first one is this. How can you bring God into the various moments of your day? You know, I think it's really easy just to kind of put God at the borders to kind of spend some time with him in the morning to kind of think. And then we go through our whole day without even thinking about God. But but we're in a relationship with him. He wants to be in every part of our day. He wants to be in the trials and the suffering, the hardships, the good stuff, the bad stuff. He wants to be in it all. So how can you bring God into your everyday life, your uni, your work, whatever it may be? If you're looking for a resource on that, this is a great book. I'm trying to do that. It's called Enjoying God by Tim Chester. And he basically talks about all the everyday moments in life and how you can bring God into those moments. It's such an important thing. How can you, in your day-to-day life, bring him into the moments? The second question, and I love this question, and I've used it before, but I keep coming back to it for my own life. What stirs your affections for Jesus? 
You know, I love this question because it's different for you than it is for me. Of course, it always involves God's word. It always involves praying, but it looks different, right? I've told you this before. I love to go for walks in nature and pray. It's my sweet spot. I love it. If I go to the city, I feel like it's where all the, like, the stuff that just gets me distracted is. I know that's not true. For Shabu, it's the opposite. But, you know, my wife came and walked with me once and tried to pray, and she couldn't pray and walk at the same time. She had to stop and pray to focus. And so it was just terrible. It just didn't work. You know, Signa likes to listen to music to get her eyes on God. Worship songs over and over and over again. She listens to the same song a thousand times and it drives me insane. But that works for her. It gets her eyes on God. She discovered recently that she doesn't have to have a quiet time in the morning at home. She can actually go to a cafe Spend time with God. So it's different for all of us. Shabu's told us some of the things that he's doing to incorporate be still. What does that look like for you? What are the things that, that get your heart on Jesus, that remind you of his goodness and his love? We need to make the time for these things. And it's not a burdening thing. It's not like an extra thing to put on your schedule, but it's actually a release because you get reminded of all that God's done and you can stop trying so hard. It's a relationship with our Father. And finally, the last question, what lesser glories are your eyes tempted to look to? And this is something, again, that I can't tell you what that is for you. We all, if we're honest with ourselves, we actually probably know what the things are in our lives that pull us away from God. We probably know. And do you know a good question to ask to find out what's drawing you away from God is this question, what makes you angry? What do you get frustrated about and fight about with other people? These are really good questions to see where you may be trying to get approval and joy from things other than your God. What lesser glories are you running to? Are your eyes tempted to look to? Church, we must be known as a church who beholds God's glory through Christ. We must be a church who has this focus, who help one another to be satisfied in him alone. That's our only hope. He is our only hope. And so I hope that you can join us on this journey in the night services to deliberately get our eyes onto God, to look to him and to be transformed as we do so. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder of your wonderful good news to us, Lord, that you sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins upon the cross. He rose again and he showed us that the payment was acceptable before you. So, Lord, that when we put our faith in you and we believe in you, we actually receive your righteousness. We can come before you as adopted children who can just come to you and enjoy you, Lord. That's such an incredible thing. I pray that you weigh that upon our hearts tonight. I pray that will be the thing that we walk away with, that we have this access to you. So, Lord, help us. Help us to bring you into our lives in the everyday moments. Help us to regularly do things that get our hearts upon you. And, Lord, please give us eyes to see and honest hearts to know the lesser glories that we're seeking, Lord, because you say to us in your word that these things can't give us life. They're broken systems, you say in your words. Lord, help us to see that and to turn away from those things and look to you. 
Father, we need your help in this. We need your help as a church to do this. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that you will apply it to our lives through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, yeah, questions? Sorry, I forgot completely about questions. It's not going to be up there, is it? Is Old Covenant just referencing the commandments of Mount Sinai, Abraham's covenant, or is it talking about another covenant? Uh, I think that, that the covenant that Paul's referring to is specifically the law, which is not only the Ten Commandments, um, it's actually the, the commandments that come after that, so the sacrificial system, all those kind of writings we read about in, in Leviticus Numbers, that's counted as the law. In fact, sometimes when they mention the law in the New Testament, they actually mean the whole Old Testament canon. They mean the, the, specifically the Torah. That's what the Pharisees learned about. So I think that's what he's referring to. The fact that he mentions Moses so much in this passage, you know that in this passage at least, he's talking about specifically the Ten Commandments and those laws that come immediately after that before they enter into the Promised Land. So I think if you want to chat more about that, because that's a big whole topic to explore, I'm happy to chat about that afterwards and point you in the direction of Shabu, who can answer the harder questions. <laughs> He's shaking your head. You can call Nathan. He's still... All right. Is that, that was all? Awesome. Josh?